it may be a bit startling seeing an all-caps title with a different artwork, but what Paul and I are going for here is uh, Dan and Greg were both uh, doing family things because they have those. And uh, Paul and Damn. I... Damn. <laughs> it's a little sad, but no. Yeah, well, hey, it is True. sad. Now, Paul and I, a couple of Ronin, uh, we decided to pave our own path, and we are recording an episode that we wouldn't normally cover as much as I would like to cover these kinds of things. Uh, I think there's a bit of professionalism in, uh, at least a shred of professionalism in the flagship show, Armchair Adventurer. So Paul and I have decided to start a little spinoff whenever we have something like this we want to talk about. And the song you just heard may remind you a little bit of Stranger Things. And that is actually not intentional, but serendipitous, maybe. Uh, because Absolutely. what this first episode, we're going to be talking about the Montauk Project. And that is a absolutely bonkers conspiracy theory. Much less uh, believable than I thought going into this. I thought there was going to be a little more that you could believe, but it's pretty crazy. But... The gist is the unofficial story of what the Montauk Project is was basically the inspiration for the plot of Stranger Things. In fact, when the show was originally pitched by the Duffer Brothers to networks, it was called Montauk and took place in Montauk, Long Island. But due to, like, they had to film in Atlanta, and it's hard to make it look like a coastal town in Long Island when you're filming in Atlanta. So they ended up just going with Hawkins, Indiana. But let's, let's bring it back a little bit. Because goings-on in Montauk, like above the board, military or otherwise, goings-on in Montauk, been going on a long time. It is the easternmost point of Long Island, so it's a pretty natural defensive location, and there was a lighthouse put there in 1792, meant to keep watch for British ships coming towards... New York or Boston, because it's basically the midpoint between those two. It remained pretty pretty docile until World War I, when the Navy set up Naval Air Station Montauk there, which they used as a site for launching recon balloons and dirigibles, stuff like that. Oh, hell yeah. But it really picked up a little bit of steam during World War II, and when it was greatly expanded and renamed Camp Hero. And it wasn't just, you know, the Navy anymore. The Army, the Navy, and the Coast Guard all had facilities and projects based there. They repurposed four 16-inch naval rifles intended for battleships to be used as coastal artillery for ships. Now, Na- Naval rifles? Yeah, like meant for battleships. Like, like cannons? Yes. Okay. And I, my question to you is, it says there's 16 inch. Is that the diameter of the barrel then? Ooh, yes. Must be, right? They're not 16 it's, inches long. That it's wouldn't not. Be very, oh, no, no, no. Yeah, it's, definitely, very effective, right? it's definitely diameter. I'm trying to, like, confirm not radius, but I think it's diameter. Oh, radius that's, would be big. Okay, that's almost three feet. Yeah, it'd be huge. So, you said that there, was World War II? World War II, yeah. They, there was a big fear of, like, U-boats also, so there was torpedo stuff set up there. Mm-hmm. And um, what's kind of funny is they wanted to disguise it a little bit. Like these, first off, these artillery bunkers were laid back against, they were dug into like a hillside, like a bluff kind of. And there wasn't much 
actually showing except the gun itself and then a you know concrete kind of enclave and they covered it with as much like netting and foliage as they could and all of the military buildings were disguised to look like a fishing village so like these concrete buildings would have gabled roofs on them and windows painted on the side and they're all the gym- white with like blue edging and yeah like real singing she see how i came in talk sea shanties yeah just like a real coastal new england uh they make them all dress up and like what are those big like yellow suits oh yeah the slickers yeah the slickers yeah, yeah. or oilers i guess <laughs> oilers yeah yeah um and like the gymnasium was they put a steeple on it to make it look like a church um awesome i wish that's how we did modern military bases yeah, <laughs> hiding in plain sight. You know, sorry to change the subject, but uh, I don't know if I've ever told you this. When we lived in Jackson, mm-hmm. Wyoming, that was also where Dick Cheney had a house, like his his second home that wasn't the Naval Observatory or wherever the vice president lives. Um, he had a house on a golf course in Jackson, and my dad and I he was working at the time on designing a automatic gate for this um, country club. So we were driving around and it was funny that the secret service, they had these little outposts all around the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And it was like, they had these huge towers for communication, I'm guessing, but they would stick like six branches on it. It's like, who are you even trying to fool? Just don't, just don't put any of them. Everybody knows the vice president lives there. There's yeah. Black Hawk helicopters that fly over all the time when he's here. Like, you're not, nobody's, you're not fooling anybody. Sorry. Yeah, no, like, military general is, you know, in and yeah. out of that place every other week <laughs> for vacation. Yeah. Now, thankfully, those artillery, you know, that never really had to be used. There were no naval invasions of the contiguous United States. Yeah, which I, I got to say, like, just... Coastal artillery artillery is kind of cool in my opinion. It really is. You know, it's just something we kind of take for granted nowadays. Like, and obviously modern technology is advanced that it's kind of useless in a sense. But like, can you imagine just like, oh, I'm just walking around New York and there's some like giant like artillery cannons yeah. pointed towards the sea, you know, She's ready for right Nazi at, scum to show yeah, up. Yeah, right like, at the harbor. Yeah. Now, uh, once the Cold War kicks off a little bit the base takes a different direction so two factors here i guess the the main thing was that first berlin blockade that really got people nervous and then paul help me out here is it the tupolev 44 the uh, soviet bomber do you know oh uh the bear yeah the first one they got that was like intercontinental range Yes. Well, and it's still in service today, too. Fantastic. Much like the B-52. Exactly. One one we've been hanging on to a while. Yeah, but like the, uh, yeah, the bear, the two, I think it's TU, the TU-44 or whatever. Yeah. It, it's it's a prop plane, which is crazy to me. Like, <laughs> wow. You know, okay. 2020, here we are, and it's a freaking prop plane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So... Now, because they had this bomber, the army portion of the Camp Hero base 
was well within range. So they pretty much up and left. They gave all of the rest of their land, the army, half of it, to the Park Service, who in turn gave it to the state of New York. But the Air Force stuck around and expanded their operations as a radar detection site. Now, initially, pretty weak effort, because radar wasn't awesome back then, when it first kind of started. And they ended up going through a long, uh, a list, I should say, of, of radar systems before they settled on the one they have. But the final one that is still there, standing today, is the ANFPS 35 dish. It is The dish itself is 126 feet long and 38 feet high, but I think the dish itself is over 90 feet off the ground. It was the second one ever built, and it had a range of about 200 miles offshore. It could detect things. However, it was very powerful, especially for the time, and they didn't really have that whole thing on lock yet, and so it had to be recalibrated multiple times because... Every so often, it would just completely jam television and radio in the area. Oh, my God. Well, and that close to, like, New York City, too. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. 200 miles is nothing. I think just that entire, just that dish being there right by New York, big spinning every 12 seconds, it would make a full rotation. I think that was kind of the impetus for a lot of people being very nervous and making all these conspiracy theories about this. Especially in the Cold War, too, when everyone's on edge of everything. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind funny. of like in that episode. And I think that, you know, a lot of these people, it's kind of like that uh, Dan and I did that really short episode where we talked about the National Radio Quiet Zone. And there's a bunch of nut jobs that move there because they think they're extra sensitive to electromagnetic radiation. Yeah. And so that's what, like, a lot of people thought that every 12 seconds when this dish would spin, it was just blasting uh, mind control waves into people and animals. Love that. So we've got this stage, this radar base, on the tip of Long Island as the, we've got as the stage for basically a myriad of conspiracies that can all be kind of linked to, to this. It's kind of perfect in that way. Things like time travel, teleportation, interdimensional travel, alien contact, things of that sort. Um, Paul, are you familiar at all with the Philadelphia experiment? Do you know what that no, is? No, um, it's not ringing a bell. That comes up again, but that was an alleged experiment in the 40s, 1943, I think, when the military, in, in an attempt to find a way to camouflage battleships from... Nazi radar accidentally disappeared a ship. It vanished, just winked out of existence. Now, of course, that very likely didn't happen, but that's a conspiracy theory. And it comes up in a startling fashion a little bit later. But I'd like to talk about um, some of the things that really fueled the fire, the first of which being in... 1984, when Camp Heroes deed for the Army portion. Oh, I know. I'm sorry. If this was 1984, this was the full base. When the deed was handed over to the state of New York as parkland, the paperwork notes explicitly that the state 
would own everything on the surface of the base, but the government retained ownership of everything below the surface. Mm. There's a few things that could be. Because <laughs> one, I've found, I've watched videos of people, um, you know, while it is trespassing, it's very easy to just walk around and even climb to the radar tower in this place. Like the dish? Yes. Oh, wow. Because um, it's, you know, like all the buildings are still there. The All of the doors of everything, the bunkers, radar towers, buildings, a lot of these were just like sealed. Uh, in the case of the bunkers, completely filled with concrete. But people just busted a hole through the door of the radar tower building. And the stairs are still there. They're a little broken, but, you know, people place down like boards and netting. And you can just walk right up. Now, of course, the cops were called in that video, but, you know, nothing happened. There were just people down there like, get down from there. So uh, you can still go. And there's manholes all over the place, but a lot of the entry points have also been filled in with concrete. So there's a couple ways you could take that. There's still something secret going on down there. Stranger things. (laughs) Or it could just be there was like, there's a lot of exploded, unexploded ordnance down there or something that they just had and didn't want the state of New York fiddling around with, so they just said, don't, don't go down there. What do you think? The ordinance, I think, would be way too dangerous just to leave behind. Right. Because um, all it takes is just one, like, asshole to find the one place they forgot the pour concrete in uh-huh. and then, you know, messes around there with, you know, 16-inch artillery shells. And absolutely just murders himself <laughs> and everyone else, you know, within a, a well, block area. <laughs> Even underground, that's still going to do some damage. Do you think, with what you know, would an Air Force radar base, a base <laughs> that, primarily made for radar, what use would they have for a bunch of ordnance like that? Oh, zero use. Like, right. I would say the ones we have today, um, oh, like there's barely anything there besides the actual radar systems. Okay. Kind of like how this sounds. Do you think it's possible then that instead of ordnance down there, instead of properly disposing of a bunch of like equipment and documents, they're like, just throw it all in the basement and we'll flood it with concrete, but didn't want anybody going to find, you know? Yeah. When did, so when did they kind of close that down again? 84. Yeah. And that kind of makes sense timing wise, or it's just, you know, their home station, there's no, like, immediate risk of just burning everything. It's just, okay, just fill it in with concrete. Right. They got time. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of surefire, I guess. Yeah. Not for nothing, but uh, before I get into the the, the loonies, um, <laughs> I did see that this was part of the SAGE system, if you're familiar. I this saw a little, bit about, a little bit about that. But I think that's just the, it was basically like an internet of radar way before the internet, but it was the network of combined radar that would show up as one image in Cheyenne Mountain. Like NORAD would see that one combined image and it was part of that. Yes, because like this was kind of one station amongst many, um, kind of on like the northeastern area. And like, especially back during that time too, like kind of stemming back to our um, Damascus episode. You know, the, they had basically everywhere surrounded with nuclear weapons or even just short-range nuclear weapons. 
Right. But likewise, they also have radar systems all the way around the United States in various locations um, okay. where they could detect, you know, if someone was launching a nuclear weapon from any direction. And then nowadays, like, just radar systems are advanced enough that you don't need them everywhere. So you can kind of... Do they... Um, do you know what kind of numbers we have now for radar stations? Because I know there's, like, the pave pause thing that has a huge coverage in especially the northern part and up into canada and those are some spooky looking things by the way look those yeah. up but is there still a bunch of smaller stations as well still placed um i don't know about smaller stations um when we're talking like like things that incorporate like space like icbms and whatnot like you know you need a big system for that i know uh -huh. they do have like smaller radar stations like um, that they just kind of place, and they're usually just at, like, Air Force bases along the coast. So, oh, like, okay. Like, Hawaii has, like, for, like, aircraft and, like, things like that. Um, oh, true. Like, I guess there's kinda, civilian kinda just, ones. Like, kind of generalized like that. Um, but you're talking, like, things like, you know, tracking ICBMs and satellites and stuff like that. I think our main three are, you know, Alaska, North Dakota, and uh, Greenland, actually. Ooh. So Fantastic. I believe those are kind of like our main three when it comes to that ideology. Okay. So we got two guys, two guys who claim to be very deeply involved in the goings-on, the nefarious goings-on at the Montauk, in the Montauk project, we'll call it, <clears throat> speaking generally. And that's a guy named Al Bielik and a guy named Preston Nichols. I've seen some videos of both these guys talk, and they both seem like they're out of their fucking gourds, personally. But um, Al Bielik, first of all, this first guy saw a movie called The Philadelphia Experiment that kind of adapted the conspiracy theory. Except in this, it follows two, um, two sailors on the USS Eldridge who travel through time after they get vanished and he starts thinking boy this sounds really familiar so he under undergoes all sorts of new age uh you know hypnosis and uh trying to pull out repressed memories and suddenly remembers that his name is actually edward cameron and he was involved in the philadelphia experiment with his younger brother duncan and so um his story was that they traveled forward in time from, I'm guessing Philadelphia is where the Philadelphia experiment happened. I didn't actually care enough to check. Traveled yes. forward in time, 40 years to 1983, where they popped out outside of Montauk Air Base, or the Camp Hero Air Base in Montauk, Long Island. But then they were sent back in time by the military to shut off the system that allowed it to happen in the first place. But while doing so, the time-traveled Edward Cameron convinced his dad to have another kid that they could then send Duncan Cameron, send his consciousness into this younger kid as a, quote, walk-in soul. And we're going to come back to that. <laughs> but, but first enters Preston Nichols, 
who also came forward after uncovering some repressed memories. And instead of being a subject, he remembered being um, involved in the project. And he worked with something called the Montauk Chair, which was a chair that would strengthen telekinetic powers and, you know, mind waves and stuff. And he worked on this transported Duncan Cameron. Like, he was one of the, quote, Montauk boys that the Eleven from Stranger Things is supposed to be one of those. Like, they were just kids that were abducted and numbered and experimented on. And they worked on something called the Seeing Eye Experiment, where Duncan, or one of the other Montauk boys, would hold, say, like, say I was Mr. Nichols. And I would give one of the Montauk boys a lock of your hair, Paul, some of the hair that I took when we lived together. What? And um, I would give it to the kid, and he would hold it in his hand, and think really, really hard while sitting in this chair, and it would allow him to see through your eyes. And um, Preston Nichols starts to get kind of disillusioned with all the work he's doing and just experimenting on these boys. So I've got a quote here from his book that I'm going to read. This was after, and this is where the Philadelphia experiment comes right back in. Eventually... Uh, Duncan became powerful enough that he didn't have to sit in the chair anymore to do these things. So they stopped using the chair, but Nichols' superiors told him to leave the chair on until August 12th, 1983. I'm sure you can guess where that's going. They needed to keep the time loop open. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's the quote from his book. We finally decided we'd had enough of the whole experiment. The contingency program was activated by someone approaching Duncan while he was in the chair and simply whispering, The time is now. At this moment, he let loose a monster from his subconscious, and the transmitter actually portrayed a hairy monster. It was big, hairy, hungry, and nasty, but it didn't appear underground in the null point. That was this underground chamber where they would, you know, summon entities. It showed up somewhere on the base. It would eat anything it could find, and it smashed everything in sight. Several different people saw it, but almost everyone described a different beast. Um, And then Nichols had to smash all of the equipment that powered the Montauk chair before the beast disappeared back into nothingness. And that incident, plus the successful time anchor that was built between August 12th, 1943 and August 12th, 1983, ensured that the project would be shuttered. Employees were then brainwashed, And in 1984, the lower levels of the base were filled in with cement. (laughs) Whoa. Um, Like, that's that's the story of the Montauk Project. And, uh, you know, obviously truncated. I didn't, I actually had more of what Nichols talked about, but I was like, this is fucking nothing, dude. Like, (laughs) these ramblings of a crazy man. (laughs) For sure. Um, I per- personally, I'm disappointed because all I had was like the name and some pictures when we were going into this and I was really hoping there'd be some actually juicy stuff, but oops. Um, I do have one thing though, and this is real that I'll finish with. It's, I'm going to read it as quick as I can. It's a newspaper article from the Hamptons, which if you don't know, 
uh, super rich uh, vacation destination in Long Island. Most of my life, I thought the Hamptons were in like Michigan. Don't know why, but I thought oh. it was more like Rust Belt, you know, some super nice area there. Long Island makes a lot more sense, mm-hmm. but it just never occurred. And the Hamptons, I don't know, it sounded kind of whatever. This is from a newspaper. This is an article from 2009 uh, from the Hamptons, and it reads as follows. Last Wednesday morning, police received a call from a citizen who lives in the Camp Hero housing development just one mile from the 11-story abandoned military radar tower, saying that when he woke up, he observed that the dish atop the tower had moved about 90 degrees counterclockwise from where it had been the night before. When he went to bed, it was pointing to the northwest, as it always has. When he woke up, it was pointed to the northeast. It has not moved at all since 1966, this man said, since it had served its final day for the Air Force and was decommissioned. He thought it startling that the dish has now turned in another direction. The call was transferred to the Montauk Police Annex in the center of downtown Montauk, where an officer was dispatched to the scene. The dish was indeed pointing to the northwest, but even though the officer was a longtime Montauk resident, he could not remember if that was different from the direction it had always pointed in. He thought that perhaps the caller was playing a trick on him and that it had always pointed to the northwest. He went to see the caller, Howard Edelstein, who was adamant that he had seen it move. So the officer asked around. Nine people said that even though the dish looms over the landscape at 110 feet, they never noticed before which way it pointed. But an old-timer, Max McLaughlin, said he remembered that it pointed northeast, and when he was asked to look at it, he did and became agitated and said that it very definitely had moved. Had moved, sorry. Later in the day, police made a further call to the New York State Park Commission office in Sayville, who said that it had checked the plans, and since the radar tower and the support housing had been made into a state park exhibit in 2002, it had been pointed to the northeast. The Montauk Fire Department was called to the scene, since it was now believed that it indeed moved, and that it might have come loose from its moorings up there atop the concrete tower. The concrete tower rises 90 feet, with the steel dish 20 feet high and 40 feet wide. That's 40 feet wide, that's not true. It's a lot wider than that. Ladders were put up to the side of the tower, but they did not reach far enough up, and so it was decided to abandon the fire department effort because the dish might be tipsy and dangerous and possibly come down on top of everybody at any time. What could they accomplish up there anyway? As a result of this, the fire department and police put a police cordon around the base of the tower until the parks department could dispatch experts to deal with the situation, which was arranged for Friday. The dish did not move at all on Wednesday night or Thursday, but on Friday morning it was found that the dish was facing southeast, another counterclockwise move of 90 degrees. Again, it had apparently moved during the night. A team of 15 experts from New York City Bridge and Flange Repair Company arrived in three trucks on Friday about noon. It was a warm day and there was a big crowd of people behind the police barrier out there to watch. Men in helmets with climbing equipment and pickaxes spent an hour atop the tower and said the dish showed no sign of being moved whatsoever and that the heavy bolts, though rusted a bit, were still holding it in position fast and there was no danger of it falling or coming loose whatsoever. It's as solid as a rock, the foreman from the NYCBFRC said. (laughs) At the suggestion of a Montauk War veteran at the scene, retired Air Force Colonel Paul Weiza, George Pincus, who said he had known Air Force officers who worked in the Air Force base in the 1960s, it was decided to put a call out to experts in the military who, with blueprints of the interior of the tower, could go inside to see what was causing the movement. To that end, the plywood covers of the door frames to the tower were removed, So that's what I'm talking about. They just blocked it off with plywood. A police cordon remained at the tower all Friday night, and on Saturday morning, 
through the good offices of the Coast Guard Air Rescue Squadron at the Gabreski Airport in West Hampton. Army engineers were contacted and with the original plans and about a dozen experts came out in helicopters on Saturday afternoon to go inside the interior of the concrete base to determine what had come loose in there. This is a little longer than I thought it was. The experts spent a day inside and came out with the report that everything inside was frozen solid and it was impossible for anything to make the dish turn. Saturday night, a team of 10 police officers and detectives remained on an all-night vigil at the radar tower. The dish did not move Saturday night. On Sunday night, the police took a different approach, feeling that perhaps local teenagers were involved in this as a prank. <laughs> it's a big prank. Mm -hmm. The cordon was removed and plainclothesmen were dispatched to loiter at the scene all night, some disguised as campers on the beach, others as fishermen or hikers. Three went to some of the homes in the Camp Hero development where some homeowners volunteered to allow them to conduct a vigil from the attic of their homes all night. It was hoped they would catch the perpetrators in the act, but once again, the tower did not move that night. On Monday, East Hampton Town Supervisor Bill Wilkinson ordered the stakeout to be discontinued for budgetary reasons, is what he said. East Hampton Town finances are very tight. They need to save every penny. Nothing is coming of this, he told a press conference Saturday afternoon. On Tuesday morning, it was found that the radar dish had moved from southeast to southwest to a point where it has been, an, uh, where it has been, all this activity began six days earlier. As we go to press, everyone is waiting with bated breath today, Tuesday, to see what is going to happen tonight. Frankly, I'm scared, said Paul Peterson, who lives in the South Edgemere Road in Montauk. Now that's the end of that, and I did not find any follow-up article to that, so. What? If you'd believe it. Yep. No follow-up. Is it, and it's not still moving, you know? Right. To this day, it's just that so. like period of time. I feel, like if, I feel like if it was still moving, there'd be some sort of bigger investigation. They put up like cameras and stuff yeah. like that, especially now. I don't get why they don't just demolish it. It's broken into, well, it's covered um, in graffiti. I believe it's similar to Plum Island for a while too, which we'll get into that in a second. Yeah. But, um, I believe it's a historical site. Oh, you're so absolutely right. It is. It, right. It's a, it's illegal to demolish it. It's like killing a bald eagle at every level. At and, every level. <laughs> I mean, even like the federal, no one can destroy it. It has to come. Oh, down. Okay. For some it's, reason, I thought you meant if you did that, like if we destroyed it, we would be charged by like the city, the state, oh, and we, the federal government. Would. Oh shit. Oh uh, well, we would. We at I, I believe either the state or the federal government. It's the same way. So Montana is weird like that. I learned this when I was out here. Is every older building, like older than like, it's not even like it's like nineteen sixty or seventy. Like you can't take those any building down, um, because they're all considered historical landmarks. Oh, bummer. So there, so in like the wide open, you'll just see like these like old like broken down like barns and sheds and shit and it's like why don't they just take it down and get rid of it and just like use the land and it's like well they can't <laughs> it's, it's on actually... the register sorry yeah yeah exactly but now that article is from 2009 and i purposefully removed a paragraph that mentions something that happened in 2008 that kind of stirred up interest again in the montauk project little something called the Montauk Monster. Would you mind telling us about that, Paul? Yes. In July of 2008, um, 
some beachgoers were walking along the beach, and they noticed something washed up on the shore, and they thought it was pretty odd. So they took some photos and sent it off to the newspaper, and they basically described it as... And we'll put a picture in the, the post as well, yeah. so, so you know what we're talking about here. But how they described it was, it was the size of like a small dog, maybe a larger cat. It was hairless, but had patches of fur, um, kind of just randomly over it. And long finger-like paws, like almost like long fingers. Mm-hmm. And most disturbingly, it appeared to look like it had like a beak for a mouth. Right. Something like it shouldn't like, exist, yeah. Like a large bird would. Um, and then also, in an in, in interview, they said that they saw that on one of its like paws, there was like a leather almost tag on its like wrist or paw, mm-hmm. similar to like one you would get like at a hospital. But it was le- leather, of course. Um, nothing written on it, you know, washed away, obviously, from the seawater. But um, just... When you see the photo, it's pretty creepy looking. It really is. It, you know, it's especially like the beak part of it, too. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of like theories of like, okay, is it a sea turtle? Is it like a, like a coyote or something like that? And uh, zoologists basically believe that it was a raccoon that was just so decomposed and just spent so much time in the water that, you know, it lost all of its fur but like maintained its skin and its face actually just kind of just decomposed off and it just rounded out to make it look like a beak, but it just didn't really work. So yeah. The one like thing that people try to catch it on is like the long finger, like, um, uh, like paws or whatnot. No, but, but even that they're like, you know, anything can happen with, you know, de- decomposition. Yeah. So. Especially in the water. You know, but that's interesting that it's in that same article that you were talking about with the radar. Yeah, like it's just like two very disconnected things. But yeah, it's just all happening at the same time in the same location, and they're like, "Fuck, it's got to be related." Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Did this thing set the radar station to spin? Oh, who knows? Crawling through the electronics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's crazy. But, like, so I do have a question for you. So no one has been down into, like, the lower parts? Like, it's as all concrete, know, yeah. concreted off. Like, that's almost kind of surprising. I guess just because it's still, it's still, like, guarded in a sense, isn't it? Like, because you, you're trespassing if you go below the surface of the earth based off the deed. Yeah. So there's got to be, some, like, you know... Is there someone that enforces that? Excellent question. Um, and I don't know if it's... It said there were manholes. And I saw, like... Well, let me start. It, there were There's a lot of, like, manhole covers. That I don't know if those were, like, access to steam tunnels or something. Mm. Utility tunnels. Those have all been cemented in, and that was corroborated by a YouTube comment I saw on one of these videos of people exploring. Somebody's like, why, why would you spend all your time going in the radar tower when the whole mystery is like what's underground and mm-hmm. somebody coming is like, it's all sealed. You know, there's nothing you can do now, whether that was some sort of CIA shill, we'll never know, but <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess that does make sense. Cause I imagine there's still, you know, it's a park. So there's right. you know, park rangers and mm-hmm. interior people. 
So, you know, to start blasting away at concrete, it's kind of going to make some noise. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, why is that guy rolling around with a whole bunch of TNT? <laughs> I would, I, if I was in New York, I would want to go there just to see if I could patrol around and see something they forgot, you know? Yeah, they forgot start one manhole. lifting up logs in the wood and shit. I don't know. Who knows? Find that yeah, maybe but like, cave entrance. Have you ever, I, well, I was going to say, get along those lines of like, there's like some videos and I mean, we kind of, that old uh, research lab in Ames yeah. that uh-huh. we were poking around in, like yeah. just the creepy mode that is. And then we were above ground in a, in a building, but above ground. Now imagine being below ground, no lights. That's some spooky stuff there, guy. Did we go inside? We climb on the roof. I think oh, we went right. inside. At least parts of it. There's some parts that were like like destroyed, locked, you know. Yeah. But I mean you could look around for the most part. Yeah, and I know some parts had electricity and that kind of sketched us out. We don't know if there was gonna be like alarms. It did, it did yeah, exactly. It did have like kinda um not the it wasn't like the red exit signs. Yeah. yeah but it had like a you know, I think I had a couple other lights too, but either way. Um, so the Montauk monster, kind of what drives a little mystery behind that too, is uh, Montauk, New York is just south of kind of like this bay. And to the north, on the northern tip of... Um, I, I the happen to have the point. map open. Oh, do you? Sorry. Do you remember what the name of the point is? On what? Where, where Plum Island is right next to? Orient Point. Orient. And it's Gardner's Bay. Gardner's Bay. So off the coast of Orient Point is an island called Plum Island. And the reason why the Montauk Monster is theorized to have come from Plum Island is because there's a bit of a backstory. Yeah. <laughs> In fact, so, there is. <laughs> um. So Plum Island used to be host of Fort Terry, another uh, coastal fortification for coastal artillery, as you can see the theme for that. Um, Basically just a small island. I forget the acreage, but it was established in 1897 and then used intermittently throughout World War II, as we said. And then in 1952, it became a military animal and biological warfare research facility. <laughs> Some implications there. Oh, yeah. So, um, hot topic with that one. <laughs> uh, also known as the Plum Island Animal Disease Center, um, as it's known today. Um, but with the conspiracy and stuff like that, they refer to it more so as Lab 257, which is the main building that they built containing a lot of their experiments. So... Uh, during that time, between uh, two short years, 1952 to 1954, it the facility fell under the U.S. Army Chemical Corps, which is the most like Fallout esque, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> army units you could think of. Um, and like I said, two years later, it got transferred to civilian control. Um, basically, the military built it up didn't really have any time to do any experiments. And then the USDA, uh, Department of Agriculture, basically took it over and be like, hey, thanks for the facility. Uh, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna use this now. <laughs> so um, the USDA used it um, until 2003, till they turned over to Homeland Security. 
But in 1969, so they did research from 1954 to 1969 um, on uh, offensive biological weapons. But in 1969, Richard Nixon actually ended that and basically said, yeah, no, this is going to be too dangerous, especially with modern technology and whatnot. So the United States basically ceased and desisted any offensive biological weapons, but they did continue research for, drumroll please, defensive <laughs> weapons and countermeasures, which, you know, as we talk about just Department of Defense, you know, a good offense makes a good defense. So you can only <laughs> yeah. imagine what was still going on there. But... Um, do want to highlight a couple things when it comes to just biological weaponry and warfare. So in 1943, it was actually uh, President Franklin Roosevelt, FDR, who started, you know, like, hey, you know, War Department, start research on biological weapons, which is odd to me, you know, not odd to me based off what else was going on with atomic weapons. It was like, hey, find any way to win the war, and I don't care what it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, you know, they didn't know at the time, but it obviously could prove very um, catastrophic in that sense. Now it's even more so with biological weapons. But um, basically, over the course of 27 years, they, like, weaponized and stockpiled, um, you know, several biological agents. Um, there are seven notable ones. I'll only list a couple. Um, but the most notable is probably anthrax, which was actually, you know, created and not so much like developed in the lab, like they made microorganisms, but they basically made it into a weaponized system. Oh, a lot okay. of it was, you know, either airborne or water-based um, agents. You know, whether they're shot out of aircraft, either just kind of fogging places and stuff like that. Uh, a couple other ones are tularium or tular meat. I can't say it. It's rabbit <laughs> fever. <laughs> yeah. Rabbit fever. Um, the V virus, which is mosquito born, which I think is just crazy dangerous. And uh, Bruce, Bruce Leosis. So those are a couple of the common ones that were listed. But um, surprisingly, and the kind of theme for a lot of this biological weapon stuff is it's not necessarily aiming to attack humans like chemical warfare is, talking like mustard gas and sarin gas, but it's more so of how do we infect the water, how do we infect the livestock of people to basically starve them out or, you know, they eat the livestock and they are diseased themselves, which is kind of crazy to think about. The bioweapons research at Building 257 Fort Terry was shrouded in aura of mystery and secrecy for a long time. Um, it didn't take until 1993, uh, Newsday unearthed documents providing otherwise, so... You know, in 1993, they started picking it up, like, okay, what's going on here? Um, you know, they knew about, like, different research and whatnot there, but it was really hush-hush by the U.S. government of what they were actually, like, testing and researching there. Mm -hmm. And what I found in, like, just 
you know, for Terry and Lab 257 is that they really didn't have any more than 20 people working there at a time to include like security and researchers and like scientists and whatnot. So it was very like, you know, almost Area 51-esque in the sense of like, you really got to know a guy to like right. know a guy to get yeah. in there, um, especially like for a job or something like that. But um, Plum Island is most well known for weaponizing foot and mouth disease virus and rinder pest. So oh, sorry, foot, what was that last word? Rinder pest. <laughs> okay. Sounds yes. like something out of like a Brothers Grimm fairy well, tale. <laughs> very close. So um, starting with foot and mouth, um, it is not to be confused with hand, foot, and mouth which is very common, you know, for children, especially in, like, daycares and whatnot. Um, but it's basically just something that affects hooved animals. And, um, it, you, it, like, the only cure, honestly, uh, like, what they're making vaccines and whatnot nowadays, but the only cure at the time was to just kill all your livestock and burn it. <laughs> so Over. it didn't spread to others. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, thinking about that biological weaponry. Yeah, that could really destroy the agricultural part of an area you're bombing or whatever. You know? Exactly. Or and they talk a lot of, like, economics, too. You know, yeah. how much it costs just to buy beef. You know, mm -hmm. if they killed all the cattle, it's like, well, Ooh. now yeah. it's, you know, 100 times as much <laughs> just to buy you pair that up beef. with something like Agent Orange, and man, <laughs> yeah. they're not getting food. Ever, yeah. Or, yeah, exactly. Make it almost, like, medicine-based. But, um, so, foot and mouth is very rare for humans to be infected with. The main thing with that is it, it just really kills hoofed animals. So, cows, sheep, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of, like, their main focus with basically all their weapons is hooved animals. Um, just because like it, and we'll get to this in a second, just like anything that's avian. So, uh, like birds and whatnot, it just so transmittal that it could, you know, be super catastrophic, too dangerous, <laughs> too dangerous. Where okay. like, you know, I'm not well, infecting least... this farm. I'm infecting the entire world. <laughs> at least they know when to draw the line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Somewhere. As long as we don't move that line. But Rinderpest, so uh, it's actually German for cattle plague. Oh. So Brothers Grimm, indeed. Yeah. Um, but mainly transmitted through water and air. And the last known case was in 2004. Or 2004. 2001. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck. Um, <laughs> Buddy, we're always in 2000 war. Uh, yeah. Awkward topic. <laughs> Looking at you. Um but otherwise, it's been eradicated, and it's been kind of, I forget when, I think it was in like 2016, they made a big statement, uh, like the CDC and all that and stuff like that, like, they believe for the most part it is 100% eradicated off the earth, which is kind of cool in a sense, but mm -hmm. um, yes, 2001 was the last known case, and it's kind of similar for foot and mouth. Um, I think the UK got hit in 2001 pretty hard and then also korea got hit and it's actually a little bit more common in the asian countries so um the home homeland security they they're big like hey trust us we know what we're doing is they're here to help other countries too 
with like <laughs> vaccines for cattle and whatnot. Yeah. And they kind of prove that by helping out like Korea, for example. Okay. So not all bad in a sense, but sure. Um, where uh, some of the skepticism comes from and conspiracy comes from for Plum Island is obviously from the fact that no one really knew what was going on there. And the kind of the convenience of location, too. So, uh, Lab 257, they created two uh, tick-borne viruses. Um, Not used in anything like that. But what they believe happened at uh, 257, at Plum Island, was that they actually created Lyme disease. Or, or made it also tick-borne in a sense. Um, because just off the coast, only like a few miles, is Lyme, Connecticut. Right. Which is the origin of Lyme disease, as we know it. So, you know, not out of <laughs> proportion to think that, you know, somehow it got over there. And what a lot of people think what happened was, is actually that birds you know, carry ticks over, you know, that they're testing on over to the mainland. And then it just started spreading from there, you know, ticks and deer and whatnot. So that's what they believe happened. Um, you know, obviously no proof of that yet, but, yeah. you know, and obviously the government's definitely going to deny that for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and the, there's a couple other articles that, you know, some attorneys and insurance people get into it in the sense of there's a lot of things that are, like, odd when it comes to Lyme disease in general. So insurance companies are not, um, the government doesn't make them cover antibiotics for Lyme disease. It's not, like, a mandatory thing. Okay. So it's very it's very odd in the sense, like, oh, I mean, that's a very, like, dangerous, you know, deadly, debilitating virus or, or disease why wouldn't you know healthcare mandate there should be some type of insurance for it so it's like hmm maybe they want you know they don't want to be connected in any way so they're like <laughs> doing the opposite of what they should be doing <laughs> and trying to stay out of it mm-hmm. and then they kind of go into a couple other things like that of you know it's just like odd. Like the government doesn't talk about it. It doesn't, you know, do as much research as they should, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's just kind of, some people think it's fishy, but, you know, it's impossible to prove in a sense, especially with like that kind of stuff. The actual, like, you know, talking about it came from this island. Mm-hmm. We can look at like coronavirus, for example. <laughs> we think it came from like, Wuhan, China, uh-huh. but we'll never know. We will never know truly where it came from. Yeah. <clears throat> um, you know, country at best. But, and then there's also a book titled Lab 257 by Michael C. Carroll. And he goes even further in depth when it comes to Lyme disease. But also, he claims that West Nile virus and the Dutch duck plague were also created at okay. Plum Island. I do remember West Nile. That was big in our childhood. At least where I lived. Um, But it's kind of that it's very easy to disprove in a sense, because, you know, unless someone brought it from Plum Island, New York to, you know, 
West Nile, I believe yeah. Egypt, Egypt, yeah. right? Where you'd <laughs> um, think, right? Or you would think, like, you know, because that's where, you know, as much as people don't like to hear it, a lot of these disease names are based off of where they're from, you know, mm-hmm. West Nile, Lyme, Connecticut, that kind of stuff. So, you know, the Dutch duck plague, it, it, who would have guessed? One might surmise, yeah, okay. <laughs> um, so, and his, likewise, the same way as, like, you know, show me proof other than like just skepticism. So that's about it. I know there's a couple of videos on YouTube you can check out. And basically it's like the Homeland security talking about like all the good things they're doing there and whatnot and kind of their defensive, like vaccine tactics. Yeah. So I just think it's kind of interesting and they do make a good point of why it is more so in Homeland security versus staying in the department of agriculture. Because you would think staying in the Department of Agriculture would be like, okay, we're just trying to protect crops, you know, right. or, or cattle, I guess, livestock. But, like, just the ramifications that we talked about of, like, okay, if a disease did spread, like, you're talking thousands, like, millions would die, you know, economic disaster. So, huh. it's interesting. Yeah, I don't like thoughts? that. <laughs> no? I don't like that one bit. Yeah, I just love the whole, like, hey, we can't do offensive weapons anymore, but let's just continue the research and just call them defensive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have to learn, <laughs> you know, because you know that's 100% what happened. <laughs> they got yeah. rid of anthrax and all this, like, weaponry, but... I just, I, I feel like... feels to me like if they were doing these things, both what conspiracy theorists say is happening at Plum Island and also with the Montauk project feels like they do it somewhere a little more remote for sure. Then well, hop, skip and a jump from two of the biggest cities on the East coast. Exactly. And I don't know if that's just cause like world war two. Yeah. Like, true. Convenience of how close Washington is, you know, I, I don't know. Um, I know like they built a new lab on Plum Island. It's just lab wood on one. Right, and they talk about so, uh, you know funding. They want to move it to Kansas. See, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> middle of kind of nowhere. You know, maybe outside one of the cities, but you know, middle of nowhere. But even mm-hmm. that, like, let's just talk like random island that like no one is near. Mm-hmm. Alaska or even Alaska. Let's talk Alaska when it comes to like viruses. Yeah. You know, at least they're not going to spread because they're frozen on ice. Very good point. So, but I just find, like, it's just so coincidental. Plum Island and the Montauk Project are just across, like, the bay. Yeah. <laughs> you it know, is, not only weird. where they are, but, like, in relation to each other. What's going then, on in Long Island? Yeah. Um, before we wrap up I, I do i meant to mention this at the top but i it was the first tab i have open so i forgot about it there's a subreddit for montauk and it is really bad the um the most recent post was three months ago and it remains the top upvoted post as far as top of the year and it is um Anyone here sell weed? I'm currently in town looking for a plug. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most wow. recent top post. 
I've got a fun fact. Okay. From 2008 to 2016, you know how I talked about they wanted to move to Kansas? Yeah. And that obviously got delayed. Um, they were they put up for auction Plum Island. They okay. were going to sell Plum Island. Like really? the actual island, yeah. And I just opened up on um, the U.S. General Services Administration, which is basically like like the end-all be-all for like military contracting and like resourcing and whatnot. Yeah, don't they get like, they buy the stuff for other departments and stuff? Yeah, like we do a lot of purchases through that. And yeah. they say that the sale is now anticipated to occur no sooner than 2023. Okay. And I know in, from 2008 to 2016, they talked about like, like you buy it, but you have to spend twenty like twelve thousand dollars through another like basically paying like a mandatory contract to decontaminate the whole island and destroy buildings and what. Right. Which you know, kind of makes sense. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what's going to happen there. Dan's going to eat his words, Ooh. and Bezos is going to buy that island and have a better house than the Vanderbilts. Oh no! People don't even know about that yet. No, but we... What? Right? Did we talk about that? Oh, at the end of the last episode. Yeah, we talked about it a little bit. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I couldn't remember if that was in our, like, yeah. prequel, like... That uh, was when we were teasing what we were doing so, with the series. That's right. Oh, that's right. Okay. That'd be amazing. At, uh, well, even close to the Hamptons, too. You know, not mm-hmm. quite the Hamptons, Exactly. It's about all No real... I guess just until next time, because, you know, I don't know when there's going to be... I'm surely we'll do more of these, but we almost got. Uh, yeah, because morals don't really work for these. I don't think. No, the, we we are don't. currently <laughs> dwelling in the absence of morals. Don't lie to the people. Don't, don't. lie to the people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, Paul, something to consider here. With things like this. They could be made to look stupid intentionally to cover up anything that might, you know. These people, these loonies, Bilek and Nichols, who's to say they weren't planted? You know what I'm saying? So I think oh, yeah. it's really up for debate whether these kinds of things are actually going on. So I want to ask you, Paul, you think something might actually be going on? Camp Hero Air Base? Underground? Deep underground? Yeah, I guess we'll never know, Kane. Shit.